Welcome to this revolution that we are starting, not starting, that we're living in. We are living in a sexual revolution. If Since the 1960s, we have been living in it. But here's the beauty of it. Sex did not begin in the 60s. It began in the garden. It began whenever God on the sixth day created human beings. He made sexual identity in the the garden of Eden on the sixth day. And he also created this beautiful union of a man and a woman coming together, together as one. Now think about it. Two people, not clothed, Together having a destination wedding in a garden, an exotic garden, it was a beautiful moment in time. So this is something that I don't want you to feel, oh my gosh, what have I just walked into? In fact, I'll say this, if you're new to Grace Point Church, welcome. Uh, you came on a good Sunday. All right, welcome to Grace Point Church. We're glad to have you. This is a new series of message, Messy Jesus, where we're seeking to restore integrity to sexuality. A lot in that, a lot to unpack in that. Would you pray with me? Would you pray for me? Would you pray for one another in this room? Would you pray for our friends and family, people watching online right now? Father God, we bow before you and we realize that sex is awesome because you are awesome. You made it. You created it in a perfect garden. You made it and sanctioned it and you brought a man and a woman together, married them together and in this exotic, beautiful garden, brought them together to be one. So Father, let us celebrate and not run from. Let us lean into and not lean back from. Lord, let us embrace what you have created in the way in which you created it. Lord, we love you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Y'all can be seated. Welcome again to Grace Point if this is your first time with us. Again, I just wanted to get that uh, introduction out there to make everyone feel uncomfortable in the beginning. I can't promise you it'll be the last time you're uncomfortable, uh, but I wanted to at least set the tone for that. And also say this, that why? I want to ask this question. Why is it that we feel uncomfortable sitting in church surrounded by hopefully what we believe to be truth? Why would we feel uncomfortable about a topic that God created? When we should lean in and say, God, how did you create it? How did you design it? How did you sanction it? What is it supposed to be about from your angle, God? Instead, we feel comfortable. Listen to the dichotomy of this. We feel comfortable about learning about it through Google searches. We feel comfortable about learning about it from our uneducated, misinformed friends in the locker room. We're okay with catching something on social media and letting the algorithms of social media tell us about sexuality. Or to allow Hollywood, because they have certainly a bastion of truth out there, allowing them to shape what we believe and think and feel about sexuality. And I want to challenge us that with this comes a lot of misinformation, disinformation, and disillusionment. And I hope with a a tremendous amount of humility and really uncomfortable standing before you talking about this, that that we would lean into it and not lean back from it. Because I want to say this, the church has not been the the example, if I can say that, uh, of truth in getting truth out there. In fact, I think, and you look back in history, we've kind of made sex taboo. And I want us to kind of erase that taboo 
Because if you go all the way back to the mid-300s when Jerome was an early church father, and, and we're talking about this, this person was like, he wrote edicts about the early church. He wrote theological treaties about the, in the early church about doctrines that we still believe to this day. He's probably most well known for his translation of the Bible into Latin, the Latin Vulgate, which for thousands of years, the Catholic church would use the Latin Vulgate as their translation of the scripture. And Jerome himself, though he was a a deep scholar and loved God, he still struggled immensely with lust. And, And what to do with that and how to war against it. He talked about having thousands of dancing women in his mind. And how he struggled to keep that under control. In fact, he would fast, long fast, to try to suppress that desire that is inside of him. Until, in his own words, that his limbs became cold as ice, but his mind was burning with desire. So again, I, I want to challenge us that even Jerome, where he takes it, is, is in an unhealthy manner. And how he will lead the church to take it into this taboo uh cave, if you will, because what he ends up doing is he ends up starting putting value on women, numbers on them. For a virgin, they were, they were a hundred. For a widow, they were 60. And for a married woman, she was 30. Sex began to become a very dirty thing within, to the point that Jerome, early church father, believed that if you were a married man passionately in love with your wife, you were one notch below an adulterer, a fornicator. What is wrong with that picture when that is the, 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 the belief system of the early church? Whenever there were edicts that were given that you could only have sexual relationships with your spouse on a particular day. Thursday was outlawed because that was the day of Christ's betrayal. Friday was out, was, was, uh, uh, not acceptable because that was the day of Christ's crucifixion. Saturday was, was, was off limits because of the Virgin Mary in honor of the Virgin Mary. Sunday was off limits because of the departed saints. Wednesday was occasionally off limits. 40 days prior to Easter, 40 days prior to Christmas, and 40 days prior to Pentecost, those days were off, as well as the days of a woman's impurity plus the feast days that are mentioned in the Bible, which left you to about 44 days. Out of a year, that sex was sanctioned in a marriage. So I want to apologize for generations before me that have made the topic of sex an unacceptable topic in the church. Because it was created by God and it is timeless. I, what I hope to do in this series is to establish what is a biblical sexual ethic. A biblical sexual ethic that it is a timeless, proven, sustainable, beautiful, and biblical. And every one of those words I've really massaged and worked on and tried to work, I want to say this to you again. I want a sexual ethic that is timeless, that is proven, that is sustainable, that is beautiful, and that is biblical. And if we can get those down, 
then I think we can, we can wrestle with some differences. We can, we can, we can get caught, we can get so caught up in the how and the, and, and, and all of the, the wrong ways and the different ways that are, are expressing in sexuality and identity of sexuality today that I just want to back away from that because as sure as we, debunk all of the ways that sexuality can be expressed and all the ways that people feel about their sexuality, we can get so lost in chasing after the counterfeits that we miss the real. So I'm going to focus on the real. And I want to put this disclaimer on there. I didn't ask God to preach on this series of messages. We are simply living in a cultural moment in time that I couldn't Comfortably be a pastor of people, a spiritual guide to people, a teacher of God's word, and continue to be silent. So play, please pray for me. I was born in the sexual revolution of the 1960s. I've grown up in all of its manifestations and, 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 and different uh, uh, expressions of it. I am living right now in this Me Too movement, Church Too movement, and living with the reality of every time I open up a news story, there's another person who's fallen. There's another person who's hurt someone. Justin Garcia, who is a professor, from all accounts, I know of him not being a follower of Jesus, and so I'm not saying he's not. He is or he's not, but he's a part of the Kinsey uh, Institute of Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction, a part of Indiana University, is by all means not a Christian institution. But yet he says this. The revolution that we're living in right now, there has not been but two major transitions in sexual revolution in the past four million years, and we're living in one of them. Now, clearly he's an old earth individual. But the point being is not the timing of the earth. The point being is that four million years is a long time to go through history. And as, again, as an institute that studies this and has studied this, and for them to say that we're living in an epic season, a cultural moment, an inflection time, that we have got to put our arms around. And I I really pray that we can develop a biblical sexual ethic. And I want to learn it from Jesus in the, the many times, in the many times that he deals with people on a sexual ethic uh, front. We're going to look at those times, some of those times, not all of those times, but throughout this series. And so please journey with us in this time. Because here's what I want you to see, that there is going to be a, a, a grace and truth continuum and tension that we're going to deal with. Now, I I emphasize grace plus truth because a lot of people kind of take the sexual ethic of grace minus truth or truth minus grace. But I just want to show you what that looks like. If, If this hand represents grace, then this is the hand that says that I really just want to talk and accept and embrace and just realize that everyone's different. And I just want to love everybody right where they're at and, 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 and affirm them as they explore and as they become. And I'm just going to let them be true to themselves. Because you need to live your truth. I'm going to call that the total grace perspective. 
And then you come over here and you got the other side, and this is going to be called the truth perspective. And in this truth, you, you get people who will point them fingers at you and tell you where you are sexually misbehaving. They will say, thou shalt not in Jesus. And they may even throw that extra syllable into Jesus in there. And, and they'll point out your errors in, in chapter and verse, and they'll, they'll, they'll come straight at you. And they'll just say, well, you're just going to have to deal with the truth. But when Jesus lives his life, this whole messy Jesus theme, he lives it in grace and truth. And see, the thing is, is if you just live in grace, you're weak and flimsy. Or if you just live in truth, I, I will say this, you won't have anybody listening to you. So your influence will be nil and void. So you're weak. The power of the band is in the tension of grace and truth. And being able to, to, to pull these apart, we use these in the gym. This is literally one that you can have in a gym. It's a progressive resistance. You, you build muscle, you break down muscle tissue, you, 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 you bulk up, you, you use these for recovery whenever, after you've worked out. This is a band that makes you stronger. We get stronger when we marry grace and truth together. Some people just want grace and some people just want truth. And I challenge you, it's going to be both. There'll be times that we'll have to deal with the tension and they're not opposites. They are compliments to one another. They don't war against each other. They work with each other. It's grace plus truth. Jesus deals with the messiness of sexuality. Jesus deals with sexual identity. Jesus deals with sexual expression. Jesus deals with sexual attraction. We're going to look at some of those. Take your Bibles and find the Gospel of John. Most of our time will be spent in the Gospel of John. And for context, John is the last of the four Gospels that are written. Just to give you a brief New Testament overview, Mark's Gospel was written first, many believe, in the early 60s. Then followed by Luke's Gospel in about 63 AD, written to a Greek man named Theophilus. And then you have Matthew written in the 70s after the fall of Jerusalem and the Jews are dispersed. Rome comes in, sacks the temple, uh, uh, disperses the people, kills many Jews. It's Nero and, and, and his strong arm coming in. Well, basically the Jews get kind of all scattered and all disjointed. And so Matthew writes the gospel of Matthew to the Jews. But then there's the gospel of John that takes about 15 to 20 years later. Between 85 and 95 AD. And it's kind of like after John leaves Israel and he goes to Ephesus and from Ephesus he begins to pastor regionally churches in, uh, around in Ephesus and beyond Ephesus, Thyatira, uh, Laodicea, Colossae and the churches that you find in the book of Revelation. He writes all of his material towards the very end. And one of those that he writes is the gospel of John. It's kind of like he's read the other gospels. He's like, hey, I'm going to tell you things that these other gospels don't even include. I'm going to give you a much broader picture of Jesus, a more personal, intimate picture of Jesus. So he writes the gospel of John. It includes things that, again, the other gospels don't even have and don't even speak of. And if you read the very last verse in your own time of the gospel of John, John will tell you that there's even more I could tell you, but I don't have space or time. So there's so much about Jesus that is, that is there and that we can, that we can learn from and, and grow from and, and become. But what we're going to see is the modus operandum 
the iOS system of Jesus, of how he interacted with people from the beginning to the very end was he interacted in the tension of grace and truth as complements, not competitors. Take John's Gospel, chapter 1. In the prologue of John's Gospel, verse 9, it says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, this is not literally these beams that you see and the particles that you see. This was the light of Jesus. Jesus, the true light, which gives light to everyone coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him. Now, not everybody's going to receive the truth. Not everyone's going to receive the light. He tells us that right there. He came even to his own people, and his own people didn't receive him. So the reality is, is that some people aren't going to receive the grace and truth of Jesus to this very day. But those who do receive him, he tells us in verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It wasn't just the natural birth, it would be the spiritual birth that would make the difference in them. And then he tells us this modus operandum, this iOS system, if you will, is verse 14, and the word Jesus became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we have seen the glory, the glory of the only begotten, uh, of the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth, full of grace. And full of truth. I like it when he says he came to this earth, he put on flesh, he dwelt among us. The message paraphrases it like this. The word became flesh and blood. Up until that point, it was only the word of God. It was only the word of God that they had heard. But now the word becomes flesh. He puts on flesh and blood and he moves into the neighborhood. Jesus moves into the hood. He moves into the mess of our life. But when he moves in, to our neighborhood, when he moves into our life, what does he bring? He brings grace. He brings truth. And that's how we should understand him. And the word full there, verse 14, play race, used also in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, to speak of Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit. It says he was full of two things. He wasn't 50-50. He was 50% grace and 50% truth. This is why I say that it's not one or the other. It's both and. He was full of grace. He was full of truth. I want to say in just about any situation that we face, we need to not only just give grace, but we need to give truth. We need to help manage that tension of the two as we work through this. What, is, what, do, what does grace and what does truth do? Well, truth will confront us and grace comforts us. And let us see this today as we see the two values of grace and truth. And so let's first of all look at how truth confronts us. Now, I know we're living in a day of a post-truth day and age where truth is now slippery and squishy. When it used to be solid and stable, it used to be objective and now it's subjective. We live in a day when we have opinions about the facts. 
Opinions about the facts? Facts are facts. Facts shape your opinions. No, we have opinions about the facts. Let me take it out of the sexual world for a moment. Let's take it to COVID. Everybody likes to talk about COVID, right? You got the vaxxers and the non-vaxxers. And all you need to do is state your opinion and somebody will send you 15 articles of research on how you're wrong. And the different people have their different views and they're solid on They can go out and find their research and they can post it and they can give you a, a meme or they can give you all kinds of stuff to state their opinion. Listen, we, we have the right to form our own opinions, but we don't have right to form our own truth. Can I say that to you again? We can form our own opinions, but we can't afford, we can't form our own truth. Okay, and again, opinions abound out there. You got the anti-vaxxers who'll say this, man, I might mess with my DNA. I've seen some of your family. Your, your DNA needs to be messed with. That's what I want to say to some of them. Uh, that would be a good thing. That may be an improvement. Then you got the vaxxers who'll post everything about why you should be vaccinated In fact, the gospel of the vaccination becomes more important to them than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, they're offended everybody in the room. What's wrong? We have opinions about facts. It comes down to a, a, a big, expensive word called epistemology. Epistemology is where we get our truth. What is our truth? Where do we get our truth from? What do we stake our life on. For so many people, it's life experience. This was my experience, so this is my truth. We have to be very cognizant. What are we basing our life on? Is it upon the experiences of our life? Because the experiences of our life may not be telling us the truth. But yet we bank our statements, our beliefs on that. And that is a very dangerous thing. Take somebody who's been sexually abused they will have trauma in their life. That trauma will tell them a narrative. That narrative will shape their epistemology of what truth is about sexuality. You take, you take a young lady, and I'm just going to take this, not just because it doesn't happen to men. I'll just say, for example, you take a young lady who's experienced this, and, 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 and what will she do in her mind? She will draw a conclusion that men only want me for this, that men are dirty, and then it will begin to shape, again, how she feels and believes and, and how she deals with that trauma. Trauma has an incredibly loud voice in our heads and in our hearts. Here's a life principle for you. While life experiences may be true, not all life experiences speak truth. Let that sink in a little bit. Not negating the life experience, the trauma that somebody experiences. Not, not doubting that. But I doubt sometimes whether it speaks the truth. And that's where you've got to really understand where is some objective truth that I can stake my life upon. And I realize I'm walking on emotional eggshells as I share this today. Please understand, I'm coming to you as a pastor who wants and values you and wants the best for you, and wants you to get through, break free from those pains of the past. But here, when you look at the Gospel of John, 26 times in 21 chapters, there's more times the word uh, aletheia is used 
then there are chapters. Aletheia is the Greek word for truth. What, what, what John writes his gospel in a day whenever what was emerging up was a false teaching, a false doctrine. Gnosticism was on the upswing and the uptick. You take whatever sexual doctrine that we have out there on the uptick. What do you do? You have to counter that with truth. So what he does is he writes a gospel account countering the lies with the truth. The truth came through Jesus Christ in John chapter 1 verse 17. Where does truth come from? What's your epistemology? I'm banking my epistemology, my truth on on a person, not a position or a party or a platform or a passion or a pleasure. Truth is in a person. In fact, if you're not careful, you'll believe a lie. And the lie, where does that come from? The lie comes from the pit of hell. The devil, he is the murderer. The beginning, uh, from the beginning, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. All these are in the gospel of John. We realize this, that some people don't believe the truth because they're sucked into a lie why don't they? John fourteen seventeen. even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. The world's not going to align with us in this areas. So just realize that because it neither knows him, nor neither sees him or knows him. And again, I come back to where does truth it originates in a person of Jesus. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, John 14, 6. But not only that, as Jesus says, I'm going to go away, but when I go away, I'm going to send to you my spirit. My spirit will live inside of all of my believers. My believers will have the spirit of God inside of them. And what's the spirit of God going to do? He's going to guide you into all of the truth. If you don't have a biblical frame of reference, if you don't have a biblical worldview, if you don't start seeing sex as a godly thing, beautiful thing as a part of God's original design in his perfect world, and I want to see truth in that, then we will get sucked into a lot of the lies of this world. So here's, again, we got to remember that life experiences may be true. What you've experienced is true. Not all experiences speak the truth. Everyone, I'll say this, broad statement. You can push back, send me an email. I'm sure I'll get some this week. Um, And I read every one of them. Um, Everyone's, mine, yours, everybody's sexuality is broken. It's broken. It's distorted. Lesbian lovers need to have their sexuality brought into alignment with truth. Cohabitating heterosexuals who are living together under the the narrative of we will one day get married, so we're just going to do the married thing now, need to align themselves to truth. The closet porn user who thinks that it's 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 not affecting anybody. It's just me and my phone. They don't realize they need to align their sexual ethic to the truth. When I was 15 years old, I took a job as a summer job working as a babysitter at a young man's, young kid's house. My, my task was to get over there before seven, rode my bike, get over there before seven because mom and dad are going to work. And then mom and dad go to work and, and little boy wakes up, feed him breakfast, play with him the rest of the day. 
and dad gets home, mom gets home, you can be free. It was a pretty easy job. It was a cushy job. Good money, cush job. I, li- I get there on day one. Get there at seven. The boy sleeps till 10. I mean, lots of time there. He's just snoozing. What do I do? I sit down in the easy chair. Magazine one. Magazine two. Mag- Fast track this story. Pornography became my form of sexual education when I was 15. All summer long, in every room and nook and cranny of the house were porn magazines everywhere. It wasn't even hiding. They were just out there. And as a teenage boy with no sexual ethic, I indulged. Not realizing what it was doing to the neuroplasticity of my brain. It literally shapes the gray matter of my brain to think that this is what sex is like. This is what sexuality looks like, feels like. This is what the woman wants from the man. There's a statement that neuroscientists will say, a phrase that says that what wires, what fires together, wires together. Because literally your brain, gray matter will begin to wire towards that to where you are now attracted to that because you've been looking at that. You begin to be drawn more and deeper into that. That's where I was. Was it hurting anyone? Not out there from my perspective. It was just me and a few magazines. That's it. Lori and I, fast forward, that's 15. Fast forward to Lori and I getting married. I'm thinking... She wants it this way. I'm thinking this is what works. She's got her own sexual background, which was a lot less than mine. But she comes with her narrative and we're living this together and we're trying to figure this out together. And I'm thinking this is the, this is what I, I've been told. I, I call my sex education for the first years of my life, 50 shades of lies because that's what it was. And it wasn't until we got good godly counsel, biblical worldview, listened to Christian godly doctors who said this is what's true and right, and we aligned our sexuality towards the truth. See, my sexuality aligns to the truth. Truth does not align to my sexuality. Know the truth. Jesus is the truth, and the truth, Jesus, will set you free. Grace comforts us. Truth confronts us. It says, you know what? This is wrong. You need to get this right. And sometimes we don't like that. You don't need to do this. I don't care if your body, mind, soul tells you this is the way you go. You don't go that way if it's not truth. Truth confronts us face on. But sometimes we think truth is hard and harsh and rough edges and, and we can't. And some people love, again, they love to hammer on the truth, especially if they're not hammering on my sins. If I can hammer on your sins, I'll do that all day long. Give you the truth up one side and down the other. But grace comforts us. Paul said it like this in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, we will speak the truth in love. Truth in love, truth, and grace. 
That's how we speak the truth. Because when we do that, the next phrase, it goes on, growing in every way more and more like Christ. Because that's the Christ way. Remember, that's the modus operandum. That's the, the iOS system. The way Jesus operated is he gave truth. He gave it in love. He gave truth. He gave it in grace. There has to be a balance there. There has to be the tension there. The strength of the band is in the tension. I challenge you, those bands at the back door, those bands around the building, to take one of these bands with you on the way out today. And just remind yourself all week long, am I giving grace and truth or only grace or only truth? And live in the plus that these fit together because it's not only what Christ did, it's what the church is called to do. Who is the head of his body? The church. This is in essence what we as the church are called to. Why are we called to do that? Because Christ did that. How did Christ do what he did? He did it in grace and truth. He did it in truth and love. Two axioms, if you will, of truth and grace. You can speak truth without being a jerk. Did you hear me? You can speak truth without being a jerk. So you're hearing all kinds of words from the stage today that you probably wouldn't think you'd hear. Because here's the tension. You can be right and wrong at the same time. And whenever you're giving out truth and you're not giving it out with grace, then you're maybe right on principle, but you are wrong on the delivery. And it does matter. And it matters because that's exactly what Jesus did. He gave out grace and he gave out truth. Number, number two is that you can give grace and not compromise the truth. Some people think, oh, I can't give truth because I'll be the, the jerk. I don't want to give truth. No, no, listen, you can give truth and not be a jerk, but you can also, you can give grace and not compromise the truth. These do work together. Caleb Kaltenbach will be with us in a couple of weeks. He was born into a home where his mom and dad divorced. Went in, mom and dad go into uh, homosexual lifestyles, same-sex attraction lifestyles. Mom re- immediately gets a, 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 a live-in wife, if you want to call her that, because it was not legal at that time. Um, and he spends all his life, they don't get a babysitter, they take him to gay pride parades. They take him to gay parties. He grew up, again, with epistemology, with the truth that this is okay. This is normal. Is it okay? I'm going to let Caleb tell you his story, how you can disagree and do it in an agreeable fashion, how you can live in truth and give out grace you want to be a part of that, it's a part of our resource page. we got a page called Messy. You can just text in Messy to 9700, and you're going to get available resources, books and videos, and uh, sign up for the Caleb Kottenbach uh, uh, event, and you'll see all that he's going to be talking about. And I just challenge you. This is a person who's lived it, was born into it. It's a false dichotomy to think that I can't give out grace. Or I can't give out truth without grace being attached. When you go look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 8, 16, it says this, Since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let's hold fast to the truth. Let's not waver. We don't have to change what we believe. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Jesus lives with a graceful heart. He understands this tension that we live in with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted just as we are, yet without sin. There was a standard of truth that even Jesus had to live up to. And let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Some people just want to be the throne of truth. But let's go to the throne of grace. Never giving up our confession, but let's go to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. These are mathematical equations that are out there that desire plus consent equals freedom. I challenge that. Desire plus consent is disillusionment. It does not leave you fulfilled, does not leave you on track with the God of the universe who made sex gave it to us as a grace gift. When you get rid of the creator, you get rid of design. When you get rid of design, you get rid of purpose. When you get rid of purpose, you get rid of accountability. When you get rid of accountability, you get rid of the fear of God. I'm not accountable to God. The Bible says, when you get rid of The fear of God, you get rid of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction. When you get rid of wisdom, you're left with confusion, anarchy, and disillusionment. We live in a sex-positive world. It's not a phrase that I invented. Wilhelm Reich, years ago, invented it. It's very much in vogue today. And I am sex positive in a biblical ethic. But the sex positive of our day and age leaves a lot of people in a, in a, in a messed up marriage, a broken home, broken promises, confusion, anarchy, and disillusionment. When we rewrite the sexual ethic, I, I want to close telling you a story that happened just this week with Lori and I. Um, I'm going to call her Mary Beth. Um, Mary Beth was on a stage in front of 600, 800 students in San Antonio, Texas. We were there. I met Mary Beth the night before. She was bubbly and vivacious and, and full of energy and love for the Lord and never knew. She's 16 years old, by the way. She sat on the stage and she told her story how when she was in the sixth grade, this is why I don't shy around from inviting your 13-year-olds in here. It's because Mary Beth in the sixth grade, in her own words, was, was, was addicted to pornography. A sixth grade girl, mind you, was addicted to pornography. Led her into depression. by, By the way, let me back up. For 16 years, she's gone to the same church. For 16 years, or for all of her school years, she's gone to San Antonio Christian School. And she has lived in the doctrine of of Christianity, okay? But it's not penetrated into her heart. It's not changed her 
sexual ethic. And as a sixth grader, she's addicted to pornography. And it was, and I got to fast track her story. I'll just say this. It wasn't until she took her sexuality and laid it as a 12-year-old, 14-year-old, lays it on the altar. It was a 14, actually. Lays it on the altar and says, Jesus, I need you. Forget the notions of being a Christian. I need you. I need you to change me. I need you to to take this because she was depressed. She was going to counseling. She couldn't get past it. And she said that night on the stage, at 16, she's been two years sober and she's full of joy. I want to say this as an example of her having to live in the tension. Things had to change. She had to face truth. But when she came, And she experienced the grace of God. The power is in the tension. For some of us in this room, for many of us in this room, for all of us in this room, we need God to redeem our sexuality. We need to get back to truth. And we need to trust him that he has designed it. He made it. He sanctioned it. He wants you to to experience it in the confines of truth. Father God, Father God, I pray that in this moment that you would speak clearly to where we are. That you would help every one of us to understand that we need both to experience your truth and your grace for the life-changing work that you want to do in us. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and set us free from any lie that holds us captive. Lord, would you do a work in us right here and now? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Before we sing this song about the freedom that comes through the grace of Jesus Christ, I know that conversations should be happening in our homes, should be happening in our relationships. We're going to have some family talk questions. And I'm writing them out of my message, and I'm trying to get them to you guys. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to We're going to make them available every Sunday on our social media, every Sunday. If you sign up for the text stream, you'll get that. Again, go to Messi at 9700, and you can sign up for that. I'll tell you this week's, the first one, is why is it so hard for us to talk about sex? So maybe on the car ride home, why is it it so hard? And then adults, parents, what is one thing? And you may not be able to answer this today. What is one thing? you wish that you had known before you graduated high school about sex. And maybe that's a conversation you have with your children, the next generation, so that we can right some of the wrongs. But right now, I pray for freedom in each one of our own souls. Would you stand and sing with us?